Being handicapped or disabled can feel like you're moving forward in reverse. I'm your host, Scott Martin. Join me and my new friends from this underrepresented community as we talk about disrupting the status quo and creating change within the world and within ourselves. Hey, life's a road trip. Hop in. Let's turn on some tunes and go. With me in the passenger seat and managing the radio for this road trip is Nate Methot. Nate is the author of A Life Derailed, My Journey with ALS. Now, if you, you've probably heard of Lou Gehrig's disease. That is the disease we're talking about. It's uh, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. It's a nervous system disease that weakens muscles and impacts physical function. So I'd like to say welcome and, and how you doing, Nate? I'm doing well, Scott. And folks, Nate and I were discussing things, and he's up for doing some of the reading so you know it coming from his heart. His book is written from his heart, but he's going to read the uh, preface and also the, the closing, and I'll read other pieces that we pulled out in order to fit them into the show, just to give you a good idea about what the book is about. So, uh, when Nate, when you're ready, go ahead and read the preface for us, will you please? Okay. I never thought I'd write a book. I never imagined that stories from my life would be interesting or meaningful enough for anyone to read. But that's changed over the years. I'm no longer noble in any sense of the word. Enough time has passed since my second life started that I've had the opportunity to reflect. I've had more than enough time it's been 10 years since that Wednesday morning at the hospital. I was diagnosed with amyotrophic lateral sclerosis in August of 2011, a month after my 27th birthday. It feels like more than a lifetime ago. It may seem like everything changed in the one day, but that isn't the truth. I've been navigating a not-so-steady stream of changes well long before they had any label. From my first cycling to my doctor's visit to the day I got my first wheelchair and everything yet to come, my story is about change more than anything. I'm repeatedly broken in the pages of this book. I gradually succumb to a physical en enemy and the words from each fight a new person. I grow into an adult and fooling in my own head. All of my struggles bring mental maturity. It may seem like a sensitive subject, my journey with with ALS. My few tears were wept in the process of writing. I've been slowly and gradually worn down by this life. I often find myself emotionally numb. I did not interview anyone for this book. Any outside input I received from the stories, participants, 
was limited to correcting a few factual details. The way others may have seen things is hardly the point. Whether or not it's entirely accurate, it's just my reality. Okay, folks, just so you are aware, and most people know Blue Gehrig's disease and ALS is how it affects muscles. Well, it's affecting Nate in his reading ability or how his yeah, mouth functions as well. So go ahead, buddy. What? I was, I was saying, uh, apologizing for my speech, but I'm doing the best I can. You don't, you don't need to apologize for it. I mean, that's the heck with anybody that might have a problem. So we're going to skip up to another port point and I'll do some reading for a while. Rob and I sat in the same classroom in college, graduating in the same year with the same major. We'd partied during senior week, carpooled to work, spent days golfing and skiing, and nights drinking. He'd moved with friends to uh, what had been a seasonal rental, half ski chalet, half rustic lodge, on the mountain road in Stowe. One Saturday afternoon in the winter of 2010-11, which Rob and his roommates had spent skiing while I was on my ass at Six Patrick, I drove up to their place. We were drinking beers the moment I walked through the door. Preparing for the night at the bars, theirs was a little like a frat house, and I had to join in, playing quarters. And by the way, folks, um, found a uh, video of uh, Nate and his friends playing some quarters, so that's going to be on the uh, Life's a Road Trip website, So, and I'll get back into it. Uh, they're, so they're playing quarters at the uh, kitchen table. It was immediately obvious that I couldn't keep up. I'd lost my dexterity and feeling in my fingers. I didn't consider telling anyone what would I say. I didn't have an explanation. I had trouble picking a flat quarter up off the table and struggled to move it into my palm. I looked at my friends and their effortless movements. I couldn't understand how they did it. I felt like I had a new set of hands. I couldn't control them like I used to. Quarters is a game of speed and much of skill. Every additional second between shots is more time for the opponents to catch you. Yeah, this is going to be fun when that video just had me rolling on the floor, Nate. It wasn't just a problem of ineptitude and uh, subsequent embarrassment. I had to drink more. I kept losing and was constantly trying to finish a beer, making things worse. I shouldn't, shouldn't have gotten up from the table, walked away from the problem. That wasn't me, not the person I knew. I knew we'd head out to the bar and I couldn't handle it. I couldn't drink like I used to. A few beers and my balance and coordination were shit. I couldn't binge drinking a PBR, which is perhaps blue ribbon, and try to fit in. I'd surely embarrass myself. Subtly, playing quarters or, or cards or in a major way, like falling down the stairs, there was no problem in drinking like that, but what could I tell them? I wanted to curl up in a ball in the corner and escape. I didn't know what to do, so I tried to find a way out. I snuck away down the stairs and saw the coat-covered couch. Maybe I could just pass out here and they'd leave me behind. Maybe I could just leave, get in my car and drive home. It certainly wasn't the first time I'd had a bad idea. They call it Irish goodbye. I've done it before, too drunk and unable or unwilling to tell anyone I had to surrender, but never by car and never before the night had even started. Standing in the relative calm in the dark room, away from the drunken noise upstairs, I made my move. A few feet from the escape I desperately needed, I grabbed my coat, put on my boots, and snuck out the door. I got in my car and turned the key. 
I was drunk. I knew that, but I had to get out, get out of there. That was more important. The driveway was wide near the top, but narrow toward the road. There was a snow-filled ditch running alongside the street, a culvert under the driveway. Drunk in the dark, but absolutely clear-headed, I didn't want to back out into the mountain road with its 50-mile-per-hour speed limit and risk a high-speed collision. Thinking I'd turn the car around, oh, Nate, trying to navigate a packed driveway, I backed my Subaru toward the ditch. Before I knew what was happening, the rear wheels lost traction. I couldn't pull forward. Oh, shit. With the rear wheels still spinning, I pulled the emergency brake as hard as I could, hoping the loss of 140 pounds from the front seat wouldn't cause the car to lurch backward. I swung the door open and stepped out. There it was, front wheels still firmly planted in the pavement, rears somewhere back there suspended above the snow. Typical of my inebriated state, the severity of the problem didn't really register. Damn, hope it stays. Forced to abandon my escape, I re-entered the house with the tail of the running car. I was getting something out of the car, and it must have popped into neutral, I told everyone. A laugh poured out. My drunken buffoonery was exhausted, exhaustively ridiculed, but I think they believed me. What were you trying to do by telling them what you told them and, and thinking that you'd be, why did you feel like you were getting away with something? I mean, this must have been one of the, the early times before you were diagnosed, right, Nate? It was, um, for sure. Um, I mean, that's the um, winter before I was diagnosed. Um, so it's quite a while before. And I mean, I had to escape. I felt like I had to escape. I couldn't tell them. I couldn't let them in. I couldn't. I didn't know what to tell them. Um, you know, I really didn't even consider telling them anything. Um, so, knowing that, there's no other explanation. Like, what do you do if you can't tell someone what the problem, you know, that there's a problem? Yeah. You have to avoid this situation. And I was only in that situation. Um, so, I just feel like I really needed to escape. Badly, and I tried to. <laughs> Didn't go well. Well, we're going to jump to the foregone conclusion, and this is where it really is <clears throat> becoming a, an issue more of the escaping part <clears throat> and you not wanting to face others. The foregone conclusion. I've spent a lot of my time being lonely in my life altogether, but certainly since my symptoms began. When I started to notice changes, I didn't know what happened. I was afraid to share it with anyone. I was afraid someone would find out. When finally I received my diagnosis, my instinct was to protect myself further. I wanted to crawl inside myself, engage my armor, and keep everyone out. I never wanted to tell anyone, in part because I couldn't accept it myself, but also because I was embarrassed. I'm still somehow embarrassed. I was always afraid of my faults, afraid that the world would see faults in me, whether they actually existed or not. When this new fault arrived, I became all, of the, uh, all the more guarded. I pushed them away. I've spent my life protecting myself. I was always the little kid, and I was always picked on and outright bullied by my older friends in the neighborhood and assholes in middle school bus. I learned to stand up for myself, fight, and make jokes. I forged my identity. Nothing bothered me. I was strong, tough. But I also think 
It made me cr uh, closed off and unable to display that dreaded, but all too importantly, qual too important quality, vulnerability. I don't know why anyone is surprised that men grow up and unable to uh, show emotion or ask questions, but rather feign confidence all the time. That's what we're taught. That's what men are, or so we were told. So that probably was, I mean, I would think that 99.999% of males are taught in a certain way to be tough and not face our problems. But, and here you are sharing that with us. And I, I think you make an awesome point in your writing, Nate. Was it this sort of thing or was it when you finally got to the point when you were writing, when you could look back and see the stupidity of maleness? Where do you think you picked that up? Or do you, when do you I think mean, that that triggered trip? Not until I was writing it or, you know, I mean, certainly after my diagnosis, I mean, I, I've learned that more and more um, recently, and maybe other people have to, it might not just me, um, but, I mean, I didn't know there was any hmm. other way, really. Um, I mean, like I said, I grew up around a big group of guys in a um, suburban, you know, suburban neighborhood, and male locker room type culture, um, you know, very pulling around like sport, having this about sports, the jokes, it's being a tough guy, and that's what it was, um, and that's who I, you know, who I became. I mean, really, I, I didn't see the downside of that, like, I didn't see the negative part of that, um, but now I, you know, now I still do, um, and i really, you know, really embraced vulnerability and, you know, not really being afraid anymore, cause why shouldn't you be afraid of something, mm -hmm. you know? I mean, ultimately, yeah. being that man's man, um, you're really... You have to be able to talk. I mean, yeah, you're really afraid of so many things. And you're so blind them. Um, and I don't, uh, well, why should I have that fear? So... I just, I don't have that anymore. Mm. You know, I don't really care. So, uh, I mean, otherwise I would never have written the book. I could never have written that book as a man that I used to be. Yeah, once you sit down and start to writing, write, you're sharing so many things with other people you don't even know. So I guess that would right. be probably the point where you, where you uh, grasp that thought and that idea. Okay, well, speaking of grasping a thought, we're going to talk about you and golf and grasping a golf club. So Nate writes, on a drizzly March day in the 40s, 40, as in the temperature, long before CCV, which is the country club of Vermont, or any other respectable golf course open for the season, four of us played nine holes at Lang Farm in Essex. It uh, didn't go so well for me. I was miserably cold. I couldn't grip my clubs. I'd never before paid any attention to my grip strength. Gripping a baseball bat, tennis racket, or golf club isn't something to focus on. It's muscle memory, an afterthought. But the fundamental task was almost too much. With every swing, it felt like the club would fly from my hands. Failing that first step took away any chance of success at all of the other things that make up hitting a golf ball. I tried to blame the weather, but none of my friends seemed to have the same trouble. A few weeks later, Rob and I went to the driving range, and I found... Though my uh, grip felt better in the warmer weather, that wasn't it. I was used to shaking the rust off each spring, 
But this was much more than that. I couldn't say that it felt like I'd never had swung a golf club before, but that wasn't it. It felt worse. It felt like I was a different person. Just going to stop on it there. So we're, we're up to a few instances now, Nate, where you were noticing things probably was starting to tumble in on you because it's, well, it's evident in your, in your writing about things and not wanting to share folks and to go along with you pulling away. Well, I'll read a little bit more and you folks can pick up on how much Nate does pull away. We're going to read a little bit on, I grew up in the backyard. I grew up in the backyard on the sidewalks, streets, and driveways, and then the half dozen parcels of woods that made up the neighborhood. My brother and I and a handful of kids close by grew up each other's, uh, with each other's supervision, mostly outside. We rode bikes and built tree forts, three that I think I, I can think of. We played basketball in the driveway and roller hockey in the street. We spent winters walking with sleds to hills in the woods known only to kids. We made up and adapted games from poor golf to tree ball to zero two. What was, what's zero two, Nate? That's a game um, you guys came up with. It's a, it's a wiffle ball based. It was a baseball or a wiffle ball based game. Um, it was basically just a game we made up for when we didn't have enough people to play a full game. Um, the reason it's called zero two is that the count is always zero two. You always have no balls on two, on two strikes. So one strike means you're out. Um, so, yeah. <clears throat> and then you go on in that same chapter and talk about going out for a run. And you were noticing that you just weren't the same. So you thought, okay, let's get into biking. And you use a line in there about how you felt like you were a 90-year-old man out to get groceries or something and just going slow. So here again is an example of ALS creeping in on your life. So perfecting seclusion. Now we're getting down to some nitty gritty about you, Nate. A lot of people never go a single day without talking to another person. I've gone many days on many occasions. And you write, in October of 2011, I moved from a small room in my four bedroom frat house on the 55 mile per hour highway to Stowe Mountain Resort to a bedroom apartment with a garage on Main Street in Waterbury Village. The first recipient of an ALS diagnosis, the fresh recipient of an ALS diagnosis, here we go, turning the corner, now you know. Unable to summon much focus for anything, I made a heartfelt effort at finding a roommate. I asked two people, rationalized that I could afford the rent on my own and resigned myself to living alone. I saw myself walking in the restaurants, bars, post office, drug, and grocery stores in the village. It had been years since I lived in a walkable town. I missed it. I didn't immediately get the internet hooked up for whatever reason, overwhelming depression. My laptop picked up an unprotected signal that as long as I kept it in one of the few spots worked okay most of the time. It was a one bar signal that was constantly disconnecting, attempting to, and then yes, reconnecting. At night, I drank beers and listened to the baseball playoffs on the old Bose wave radio I inherited from Dave's, the division playoffs, Yankees, Tigers, championship series, Rangers, Tigers, and the world series, Rangers, Cardinals. Sometimes I'd sit in the dark. I didn't really care about the outcome. Maybe I relished the peaceful nothingness at sitting alone in the dark. Maybe I wanted to prove myself 
that I was strong. I could handle whatever emotion or self-made depravity I might face. I'd been trying to prove it in my entire life and in the most vulnerable state. Unconsciously, my ammo didn't change. I didn't need anything or anyone. 27 years old, newly diagnosed with a terminal disease, I sat in my apartment alone. I didn't think this is the time to do something. I didn't think anything at all. I was tired and broke and hiding. That is all I had in me to do. You know, sometimes I'm, while I'm reading this, and I've read the book a couple of times, I just, the emotion starts piling up on my shoulders, but we're going to, we're going to keep doing this, buddy. Okay. Here's another hard part. The stuff in the closet. At the top of the stairs was a closet. I filled it with many memories of the day. I filled it with memories of the day I moved in. Hiking boots and running shoes, basketball and tennis racket, rollerblades, baseball glove, hockey stick, skates, pads, helmet, skis, poles and boots, golf clubs and frisbees, backpacks and duffel bags, all piled in a dark corner just outside the door. I bought the baseball glove in high school. I'd hardly used it since college. I played catch by the dorms and long tossed with it in the park. It followed me to every apartment. It seemed like a lifetime ago that over a friend's offer to steal it after his shift, I knew that I'd use it forever. I thought that forever would be longer. I want to pause there. We're going to leave a spot in case somebody wants to drop an ad here. The gift of time. A strange thought came over me when I contemplated life without work. I've been given the gift of time. As delusional as I knew it was to think that being diagnosed with a terminal illness was in any sense a gift, the thought still remained. Never in my adult life had I had, I had this kind of free time, and I couldn't help but dream about what I'd like to do with it. Every dream I imagined fell flat in the face of reality. I'd walked to the window, completely deflated, looked out and wondered, what can I do with my days? People would tell me to live life to the fullest. I wanted to laugh in their faces. I could have done almost anything just a few years ago, but can I live life to the fullest? I can't seem to do anything the way that I, I want to. All right. So this is after the diagnosis, you starting to pull away. And here I'm going up again, Nate. And I quit my job and you know, I didn't yeah. know what to do with myself. I mean, you. Uh, there's a sentence towards the end of that chapter, and it says, lying was far easier than the alternative. So here you are oh, yeah. again. Way easier. Of course it was. Were you trying to hold, were you trying to make it easier for other people or for yourself? I don't think I was thinking about other people. Um, it's just easier for yourself to not. I mean, if you don't tell anyone, you don't really have to go through it yourself. Um, in, mm-hmm. in a way, you know. Um, I think it was more overwhelming to me to tell everyone. And I have to actually face, you know, reality. Um, and, yeah, part of that is, like, if you tell someone bad news, you see their reaction, and you see how serious they think it mm-hmm. is. And that makes you realize it might mean more than you wanted to, um, you know, uh, pretend it was. Um, so, to me, it was just easier to... Not tell everyone. I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I did tell some people, but not more than, you know, 
handful of maybe 10. Um, but yeah, that's, that's where I was at. Well, things did change because I'm reading in another chapter on, on February 7, 2013, I posted the following. Dear Facebook, I have some news I need to tell you. In August of 2011, I was diagnosed with ALS. That's Lou Gehrig's disease. I should have told you all, all long ago, and I should have told you face to face. I apologize for my inability to do so. I just couldn't handle the overwhelming dread of, of telling you and the look in your eyes when you found out. I still can't handle that look in your eye. If I've ignored you, don't call you back or haven't kept in touch. I'm sorry. I just didn't recognize myself, and it's been very difficult to accept that I'm not who I used to be. I guess maybe I thought if you didn't know, then maybe it wouldn't be real for you in the same way it is for me. I just don't know what else to say except that I'm doing fine, and I appreciate those of you who have supported me. So then you write, a lot of people came out of the woodwork and sent me all varieties of messages, most of them simple and supportive. Some didn't. People I'd wanted to hear from. Very little change in their life. There wasn't as long as long line of old friends knocking at my door. While I was always appreciated every bit of support, a few stood out in the brain searching for negativity. Allow me to briefly indulge in the George Carlin style of labeling absurdity. And here is something that just boggles my mind. And so you write one Facebook friend, someone I hadn't talked to since high school, and I'm not sure I talked to in high school, sent me a doozy I'll never forget. She told me that this was God's plan, that I had been chosen because of my strength, sidestepping the simple-minded blanket euphemism of God has a plan. What struck me was the utter illogical insanity that was intended to make me feel better. And I suppose, too, feeling pride and being a martyr, martyrs die. I'd like to live. I, I, I got the frustration with you reading that. Was there? I like you, uh, I no, but after, you, you it. Yeah, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose. <laughs> All right. Now, well, now we're going to get into a little bit of something else. And I'm skipping. You meet someone. I believe that that's what this is. Yeah, it is. She invited me to this, uh, to join her for a show at higher ground the next week. This is a girl you've met, uh, her friend's boyfriend played, uh, keyboards in a band. We made plans to meet in nearby JC park beforehand. She'd bring a pizza. I stopped on the way and bought a bottle of wine at a gas station. I forgot to bring a corkscrew and glasses accompanied by an unopened bottle of wine. We ate a few slices of pizza at a picnic table by the parking lot. We'd walk to the mobile station on the corner in search of a corkscrew. They didn't have one. We crossed the street to Gracie's and I spent $1.09 on a two-piece red plastic device, the device we needed. Though only a few hundred yards, it felt like an adventure to my legs. Trying to maintain a steady gait at Kim's side, the person that you met, I kept those thoughts to myself. In the cool air of an April evening in the park where I'd played Little League Baseball, we drank from the bottle in, in the oncoming darkness. Kim was, wasn't the least bit phased by any of it. We could have bought paper cups, but she didn't care, and I didn't care. We drank from the bottle. The wine had run out. We got into the car, into my car, and drove around the corner to the show. As we stood in line at the ticket window, I struggled to get my wallet from my back pocket with my freezing cold, useless hands. 
I almost gave up and asked Kim to reach in the back pocket of my tight fitting pants. That I even considered asking shows shows how much I let my guard down. That's true. I really liked reading that because yeah, something changed when you wrote that fo- uh, Facebook post, Nate. It was, it was really cool. It was, it was, I was more comfortable with her because I, I felt like I knew her from the past. I mean, I, I did know her from the past, but very, you know, not very well. Uh, I felt like I did know her, and she, I, you know, I was comfortable with her, and I felt safe and protected, and you know, it's a different feeling than most, you know, um, I didn't feel like I had to hide as much. Uh, I'm still hiding, clearly, but not as much. Yeah, yeah, a lot less, a lot less. Things really start to change for you here. We ordered Maker's Mark at the sidebar, wine from a bottle, straight whiskey. I love this girl. With a drink in my hand and a heavy buzz, time disappeared to the crowd and the music. When it was time for another, I could hardly say no. So what if I drove into in from Waterbury? On the walk through the lobby after the show, we decided I couldn't drive home. Kim invited me to stay that night at her place in Shelburne and got on the phone to a cab. We stood out in front of the building as the post-show crowd slowly dispersed. A green cab Prius picked us up in the circle. I tripped on the curb oh, neat, and stumbled to my, uh, my way to the car. Yep. I'm a little drunk. She walked me to the living room couch and told me again, but she still felt she needed a reason that I was just not moved, that she had just moved. Her bed was tiny and I had to sleep on the couch. Well, you also found out that there was, what, two two ducks and a cat. So it was a hairy couch, I'm sure. I guess uh, anyone who would have expectations in that situation, but I really didn't. I was happy enough she'd invited me back the couch was already more than enough. As I sat on the couch, she leaned in. Uh, yeah, she leaned in to arrange me a blanket. We somehow fell into a kiss. She wished me good night, excused herself, and a room, and I lay back with a smile. There you go, man. That to me, as a reader of this book, that was a pivot point for you. And were you still pushing this away or not believing that it was possible? Um, I mean, yeah, like and you and Kim. I- I mean, I kind of fell into that. Like, I didn't, I didn't really have expectations for, um, for her because, mm-hmm. like I said, she was kind of a little friend and we just, we just met up and hanging out and I, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't have a lot of expectations. So it was a little bit easier for me um, to not be as fearful. Well, one of the things, Nate, for me as the reader, and I, I read the sentence, I felt confident, even prideful, happy to be out with my girlfriend. That oh, yeah. tells and me that was a heck that. I was I was very excited about that. I mean, I was I felt whole. I mean, first time mm-hmm. in a long time, I felt safe and whole, and you know, relatively happy and contented. And yeah, of course, you know that's. <laughs> but uh, a new relationship will do for you. Later on, you guys stay together, and, and you wrote that Kim accompanied Mom and I to one of my all-day ALS clinic clinics later that summer. So, obviously, she you let someone in, finally. Yeah, and, for sure. And um, that's how I'll say, and you guys even moved in together. And But, the, but yes. there's something I want to bring up to you, buddy. 
you wrote, uh, here's about your flat with Kim. It was a two bedroom flat with the living room in the center, a galley kitchen and a washer and dryer and the lime green bathroom. Yee. You guys didn't want to change that color. You kept the lime green bathroom. I mean, it's a rental. I didn't care. And you went on to write when you're uh, about with Kim that, uh, but it also filled another massive void in my life. It's given me a sense. You're talking about now you're starting to write. So, but also give me a massive void in my life. It's, it's given me a sense of accomplishment, a wide variety of tasks, large and small, simple and complex, provide people with a steady stream of accomplished feelings. As the years have passed, more of those tasks have grown out of my reach. It may seem unlikely to miss another laundry or the dishes, but I do. You may dread the next snowstorm and the shoveling it brings. I miss that feeling when you're done. So accomplishment, that is a male thing, but I think that that's a good male thing. I think it's a human thing. Mm, good point. And I really, I really do. I mean, yeah. everyone has to have something to it's, it's purpose, you know? Um, I mean, accomplishing things is a purpose, and everyone has to feel a purpose. Um, mm-hmm. That's what, I mean, really, that's what writing has done for me, and that's what you know, things like this have done for me. Um, it's wonderful when you're money. Um, so it's restricting what you can accomplish physically. You have to find somewhere else. And it took me a long time to find something else. Um, and I'm still not whole. I'm still not there entirely. But it's better than nothing. And I don't have those simple you know, sense of accomplishment from making a meal or doing a distance or going on the wall or whatever it is. Um, that's your little, you know, like, even driving your car is like a certain sense of freedom and accomplishment and doing something. You know, you're actually doing something. You're out of the world doing something. Um, that goes away. And it's very difficult. I, I, I hope people grasp that. Because so many things that we probably would miss, not being if we weren't able to do them. But you, you and Kim went on a vacation to Puerto Rico, and it was there you proposed. So uh, you two were officially a uh, an engaged couple. I don't want to get into some of the other things in, in the trip, and that that's for the people to read on on their own. But then things took. Uh, different turn after you guys, while you guys are moving into your place together. And uh, you wrote two days later, while Tom and Katie carried a couch through our sliding back door, Kim took me aside with my friends thinking we'd snuck away for a kiss. Kim told me she couldn't marry me or that the wedding was off. I don't remember the words. I remember the meaning here again is you went back to that safety trigger where you kind of beat yourself up, man. And you wrote that my waffling hesitant mind would never have been so set. I mean, that's, that's coming off and trying to deal with as, as your means of, uh, protection, self-protection, you pulled back again. And I don't, I don't, I'm not going to ask you about I mean, it's, it's relatively, I mean, one thing about having ALS, um, if anyone wants to have you, it's easy to see that as the only person that would, you know, so it's, 
it was easy for me to mm-hmm. want to get married and whether it was right or not and that meant um so I never thought it would happen, you know. So when it yeah. didn't happen, um it was you know, I kinda I kinda went back to that same mindset. It's like it's probably just her. It's probably not anything, you know. If it didn't work with her, it's probably not gonna work, period. And so, you know, I don't know. Well we're gonna jump to um a piece called Changing with Change. For years, living alone, I never gave up on anything. I couldn't. No one was there to help. There was a determination built in my mind and knowledge that frustrations would always come, and I had to get through them. So here you are rebounding, it seemed, and and maybe you're coming to grips with ALS. One of the things that I was having problems with when we were talking about doing the show was I didn't want to read too much. And I want to leave a lot of it to not just interpretation, but for information for the listeners, if they want to pick up the book. And of course the link is going to be to the book is going to be on the life's a road trip website. Okay, folks. So we're going to start wrapping up the the book part with uh, it's towards the closing. And I, I think it's very powerful. It's, it's called full of regret and uh, Nate wants to read it for you. So go ahead, buddy. I have a lot of regrets. A lot. They're large and they're small. They're real and they're imagined. Represented by questions long answered and unanswerable. Like could've and would've at best. They exist in my mind from yesterday and a lifetime ago without resolution. One of my questions, the things I cannot know, is whether I would have resolved them, whether I could have resolved them. I like to think if things had gone as I imagined, if I wasn't dealt this particular card, I would have, I wouldn't have so many, but there's no way of knowing. I never had the chance to grow up. Not really. I don't think of myself as an as an adult. How could I? I was just getting started. A few short years out of college, when I lost my way, I look back on a life full of mistakes. Or now have I learned from them? I can't go back to the person I was, and I can't bring his abilities forward. If only I can combine the two versions of myself. I think of the fear, indecision, inaction, avoidance that so often dominated my life. I never knew what I wanted. In school, in career, in my social life, and surely most regrettably with women. I look back and see someone really compelled to to pursue anything real. I never tried to answer life's most difficult questions. I never took real time to consider my path. I still never talked about it with anyone. You saw my confidence. I acted like I had all the answers. 
No one's fault. Personified. I was a child. I can do some things I can't I can't help but dwell on the things I didn't do. The chances I didn't take. The opportunities I missed out on because I was scared. There were a lot of them. I lay awake thinking about the girls that they could have been a part of my life, but weren't. I think of the memories we could have shared. Why did I need to be lonely? If only I opened my mouth, said and felt something real. And to rule the biggest cliche in this book, put myself out there. Far too much of my life seems to be things that happened to me. I'm not sure how much was my choice. I want to tell people, anyone who will listen, not to drift through life this way. Don't take the path just because it lay at your feet. Don't run away from your fears. They're scary because they are significant. Make choices in your life. Don't allow life to choose for you. Talk about the big things with someone you trust. Learn to feel to communicate your thoughts and feelings. Don't let your fear of embarrassment make decisions in your life. Learn to listen. Don't be afraid to ask questions. You'll be better for it. Talk about your fears with your family and friends. Bring them out in the open and see if they're real or imagined. Spend every day learning and take time to reflect. Ask yourself, am I happy? Is this what I want? And then do something about it. I'm able to reinvent myself in the way that I like. I want someone to learn from my mistakes. Thanks for doing that. Because it's yeah, that's, that's, coming yeah, from your heart. Real. I'll bet. But you know what? We can change things a little bit and have some fun. It's time for the road trip roundup, man. I'm going to be asking Nate five questions about his relationship with road trips. Okay. So here we go. When road tripping, do you tend to do fast food or local diners, Nate? Uh, whatever is available. I mean, hey, uh, fast food, fast food. I mean, I, I, when you're, you know, when you're younger, you don't care when it's go to the gas station gets something. Question number two. What's your dream car for a road trip? It could be something you, you know, your family had or something you'd like to, to hop in with uh, someone else, uh, you know, to, to go on a road trip. I mean, like a, like a, a Twitter van, ideally, uh, like a, uh, when you know, one of those, like a rooted, uh, Mercedes Benz camper vans. <laughs> okay. Question number three. Now you're old enough. You could, you might actually uh, go one way or another on this. What's the last cassette or CD that played while you were on a road trip? CD? Um, I have no idea. Um, um, one oh, what's CD the type I, of music I, you like? Any bands that you can mention? I mean, one, one CD I used to listen to a lot is um, 
with Hot Chili Peppers, uh, Blood Sugar Sex Magic. Um, that's from 1991, so. Oh, okay. <laughs> pretty old. We've all got our favorites. All right, straightforward question number four, buddy. Coke or Pepsi? You know, I really don't drink soda. Um, if I hadn't cheers black Coke, but mm. I really don't drink soda. Um, I don't have much sugar very often. Yeah, I was wondering about how ALS might be affected by certain things and how much you have to think you know, about I don't them know, before you I don't go forward with something. I'm affected, but yeah, I don't do very well with sugar. All right, last one. You take this wherever you go with whatever road trip you want to refer to, but what's your favorite road trip memory? Oh, I'm a, I'm a, a good one. Um, so after college, I um, you know, this is in uh, 2007. Um, two of my two of my friends and I took a Subaru Forester from Vermont to California and back in two weeks. Oh wow, that's a long so, one. Basically, cool. we drove the entire. We only stopped for gas. There's no, the only time we stopped was for gas. That was the rule. You couldn't stop to use the bathroom unless we needed gas. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, we went to um, one of um national parks. We went to Las Vegas. Um, we went to San Francisco. You know. It was it was a lot of fun, and we were twenty two, twenty three. Yeah, that sounds like a, you know? nothing could uh, could hurt you. Yeah, yep. it was a Well, we're gonna wrap it up there. You and I stay on for a little while, but I'm just gonna close with challenge relax everybody, and thanks for listening to uh, Life's a Road Trip. Thanks for listening. Check out previous episodes with new ones dropping each Tuesday. If you don't see a synopsis of this show where you're listening, visit our website at lifesaroadtrip.podbean.com for more information on this week's guest. This is your host, Scott Martin, reminding you that life's a road trip.